Welcome to Reading Christian Texts. Today we're reading Origen's First Principles. Origen was an important theologian in the early centuries of the church, and his First Principles is a work of, basically it's a proto-systematic theology. And so I'm reading from his section on free will. He begins this section with a discourse on free will from philosophy, defending the idea of it, and then he defends the idea of free will from the scriptures. So I will start where he begins to defend it from the scriptures. And this is what he says. Now that it is our business to live virtuously and that God asks this of us as not being dependent on him nor on any other, nor as some think upon fate, but as being our own doing, the prophet Micah will prove when he says, if it has been announced to thee, O man, what is good or what does the Lord require of thee except to do justice and to love mercy? Moses also says, I have placed before thy face the way of life and the way of death. Choose what is good and walk in it. Isaiah 2, if you are willing and hear me, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you be unwilling and will not hear me, the sword will consume you, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And in the Psalms, if my people had heard me and Israel had walked in my ways, I would have humbled their enemies to nothing and laid my hand upon those that afflicted them, showing that it was in the power of his people to hear and to walk in the ways of God. And the Savior also, when he commands, But I say unto you, resist not evil, and whosoever shall be angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall look upon a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. And by any other commandment which he gives, declares that it lies within ourselves to keep what is enjoined, and that we shall reasonably be liable to condemnation if we transgress. And therefore, he says in addition, He that heareth my words and doeth them shall be likened to a prudent man who built his house upon a rock, while he that heareth them but doeth not is like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And when he says to those on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, for I was hungered, and ye gave me to eat. I was a thirst, and ye gave me to drink. It is exceedingly manifest that he gives the promises to these as being deserving of praise. But on the contrary, to the others, as being censurable in comparison with them, he says, Depart, you cursed, into everlasting fire. And let us observe also how Paul converses with us as having freedom of will, and as being ourselves the cause of ruin or salvation when he says, Doest thou despise the riches of his goodness and of his patience and of his long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But according to thy hardness and impenitent heart, thou art treasuring up for thyself wrath on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to everyone according to his works. To those who, by patient continuance and well-doing, seek for glory and immortality, eternal life. While to those who are contentious and believe not the truth, but who believe iniquity, anger, wrath, tribulation... And distress on every soul of man that worketh evil, on the Jew first and on the, G- on the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone that worketh good, to the Jew first and to the Greek. There are indeed innumerable passages in the scriptures which establish with exceeding clearness the existence of freedom of will. But since certain declarations of the Old Testament and of the New lead to the opposite conclusion, namely that it does not depend on ourselves to keep the commandments and to be saved or to transgress them and be lost, 
Let us adduce them one by one and see the explanations of them, in order that from those which we adduce, any one selecting in a similar way all the passages that seem to nullify free will may consider what is said about them by way of explanation. And now the statements regarding Pharaoh have troubled many, respecting whom God declared several times, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. For if he is hardened by God and commits sin in consequence of being hardened, he is not the cause of sin to himself. And if so, then neither does Pharaoh possess free will. And someone will say that in a similar way, they who perish have not free will and will not perish of themselves. The declaration also in Ezekiel, I will take away their stony hearts and will put in them hearts of flesh that they may walk in my precepts and keep my commandments. Light might lead one to think that it was God who gave the power to walk in his commandments and to keep his precepts by his withdrawing the hindrance, the stony heart, and implanting a better, the heart of flesh. And let us look also at the passage in the gospel, the answer which the Savior returns to those who inquired why he spake to the multitudes in parables. His words are, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not hear, and not understand, lest they should be converted, and their sins be forgiven them. The passage also in Paul, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The declarations, too, in other places, that both to will and to do are of God, that God hath mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say, then, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? The persuasion is of him that calleth, and not of us. Nay, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that hath formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Now these passages are sufficient of themselves to trouble the multitude, as if man were not possessed of free will, but as if it were God who saves and destroys whom he will. Let us begin then with what is said about Pharaoh that he was hardened by God, that he might not send away the people, along with what which will be examined also the statement of the apostle, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. And certain of those who hold different opinions misuse these passages, themselves also almost destroying free will by introducing ruined natures incapable of salvation. And others saved, which is impossible, can be lost which it is impossible can be lost. And Pharaoh, they say, as being of a ruined nature, is therefore hardened by God, who has mercy upon the spiritual, but hardens the earthly. Let us see now what they mean. For we shall ask them if Pharaoh was of an earthly nature. And when they answer, we shall say that he who is of an earthly nature is altogether disobedient to God. But if disobedient, what need is there of his heart being hardened? And that not once, but frequently unless perhaps since it was possible for him to obey, in which case he would certainly have been obeyed as not being earthy when hard-pressed by the signs and wonders, God needs him to be disobedient to a greater degree in order that he may manifest his mighty deeds for the salvation of the multitude, and then for, therefore hardens his heart. This will be our answer to them in the first place, in order to overturn their supposition that Pharaoh was of a ruined nature. And the same reply must be given to them with respect to the statement of the apostle. For whom does God harden? Those who perish, as if they would obey unless they were hardened, or manifestly those who would be saved because they are not of a ruined nature. And on whom has he mercy? 
Is it on those who are to be saved? And how is there need of a second mercy for those who have been prepared once for salvation, who, who will by all means become blessed on account of their nature? Unless perhaps, since they are capable of incurring destruction, if they did not receive mercy, they will obtain mercy in order that they may not incur that destruction of which they are capable, but may be in the condition of those who are saved. And this is our answer to such persons. But to those who think they understand the term hardened, we must address the inquiry. What do they mean by saying that God, by his working, hardens the heart? And with what purpose does he do this? For let them observe the conception of a God who is in reality just and good. But if they will not allow this, let it be conceded to them for the present that he is just. And let them show how the good and just God, or the just God only, appears to be just in hardening the heart of him who perishes because of his being hardened. And how the just God becomes the cause of destruction and disobedience when men are chastened by him on account of their hardness and disobedience. And why does he find fault with him, saying, Thou wilt not let my people go. Lo, I will smite all the firstborn in Egypt, even thy firstborn. And whatever else is recorded as spoken from God to Pharaoh through the intervention of Moses. For he who believes that the scriptures are true and that God is just must necessarily endeavor, if he be honest, to show how God, in using such expressions, may be distinctly understood to be just. But if anyone should stand declaring with uncovered head that the creator of the world was inclined to wickedness, we should need other words to answer them. But since they say that they regard him as a just God, and we as one who is at the same time good and just, let us consider how the good and just God could harden the heart of Pharaoh. See then whether by an illustration used by the apostle in the epistles of the Hebrews we are able to prove that by one operation God has mercy upon one man while he hardens another although not intending to harden, but having a good purpose, hardening follows as a result of the inherent principle of wickedness in such persons. And so he is said to harden him who is hardened. The earth, he says, which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them for whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh to cursing, whose end is to be burned. As respects the rain, then, there is one operation, and there being one operation as regards the rain, the ground which is cultivated produces fruit, while that which is neglected and is barren produces thorns. Now it might seem profane for him who reigns to say, I produce the fruits and the thorns that are in the earth, and yet, although profane, it is true. For had not rain fallen, there would have been neither fruits nor thorns, but having fallen at the proper time and in moderation, both were produced. The ground now which drank in the rain, which often fell upon it and yet produced thorns and briars, is rejected and not a cursing. The blessing then of the rain descends upon even the inferior land, but it being neglected and uncultivated yielded thorns and thistles. In the same way, therefore, the wonderful works also done by God are, as it were, the rain, while the differing purposes are, as it were, the cultivated and neglected land, being yet like earth of one nature. And as if the sun, uttering a voice, were to say, I liquefy and dry up, liquefaction and drying up being opposite things, he would not speak falsely as regard the point in question. 
wax being melted and mud being dried up by the same heat. So the same operation which was performed through the instrumentality of Moses proved the hardness of Pharaoh on the one hand, the result of his wickedness, and the yielding of the mixed Egyptian multitude who took their departure with the Hebrews. And the brief statement that the heart of Pharaoh was softened, as it were, when he said, But ye shall not go far, you will go a three days journey and leave your wives. And anything else which he said, yielding little by little before the signs, proves that the wonders made some impression even upon him, but did not all accomplish all that they might. Yet even this would not have happened if that which is supposed by the many, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, had been produced by God himself. And it is not absurd to soften down such expressions agreeably to common usage. For good masters often say to their slaves when spoiled by their kindness and forbearance, I have made you bad and am to blame for offenses of such enormity. For we must attend to the character and force of the phrase and not argue sophistically, disregarding the meaning of the expression. Paul, accordingly, having examined these points clearly, says to the sinner, Or despises thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now let what the apostle says to the sinner be addressed to Pharaoh, and then the announcements made to him will be understood to have been made with peculiar fineness, as to one who, according to his hardness and unrepentant heart, was treasuring up to himself wrath, seeing that his hardness would not have been proved nor made manifest unless miracles had been performed, and miracles, too, of such magnitude and importance. But since such narratives are slow to secure assent and are considered to be forced, let us see from the prophetical declarations also what those persons say who, although they have experienced the great kindness of God, have not lived virtuously, but have afterwards sinned. Why, O Lord, hast thou made us to err from thy ways? Why hast thou hardened our heart so as not to fear thy name? Return for thy servants' sake, for the tribes of thine inheritance, that we may inherit a small portion of thy holy mountain. And in Jeremiah, Thou hast deceived me, O Lord, and I was deceived. Thou wert strong, and thou didst prevail. For the expression, Why hast thou hardened our heart so as not to fear thy name, uttered by those who are begging to receive mercy, is in its nature as follows. Why hast thou spared us so long, not visiting us because of our sins, but deserting us, until our transgressions come to a height. Now he leaves the greater part of men unpunished, both in order that the habits of each one may be examined, so far as it depends on ourselves, and that the virtuous may be made manifest in the consequence of the test applied, while the others not escaping notice from God, for he knows all things before they exist, but from the rational creation in themselves may afterwards obtain the means of cure." seeing that they would not have known the benefit had they not condemned themselves. It is of advantage to each one that he perceives his own peculiar nature and the grace of God. For he who does not, for he who does not perceive his own weakness and the divine favor, although he receive a benefit, yet ha- not having made trial of himself nor having condemned himself, will imagine that the benefit confirmed upon him by the grace of heaven is his own doing. In this imagination, producing also vanity will be the cause of a downfall, which we conceive was the case with the devil, who attributed to himself the priority which he possessed even when in a state of sinlessness. 
For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and everyone that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And observe that for this reason divine things have been concealed from the wise and prudent, in order, as the apostle says, that no flesh should glory in the presence of God, and that they have been revealed to babes, to those who after childhood have come to better things, and who remember that it is not so much from their effort as by the unspeakable goodness of God that they have reached the possible, greatest possible extent of blessedness. It is not without reason, then, that he who is abandoned is abandoned to the divine judgment, and that God is long-suffering with certain sinners, but because it will be for their advantage with respect to the immortality of the soul and the unending world, that they not be not quickly brought into a state of salvation, but be condu- conducted into it more slowly after having experienced many evils. For as physicians who are able to cure a man quickly when they suspect that a hidden poison exists in the body, do the reverse of the healing, making this more certain through their very desire to heal, deeming it better for a considerable time to retain the patient under inflammation and sickness, in order that he may recover his health more surely than to appear to produce a rapid recovery and afterwards to cause a relapse, and thus that hasty cure lasts only for a time. In the same way, God also, who knows the heart and the secret things of the heart, and foresees future events in his long-suffering, permits certain events to occur, and by means of those things which happen from without extracts, the secret evil, in order to cleanse him who through carelessness has received the seeds of sin and having vomited them forth when they came to the surface, although he may have been deeply involved in evil, he may afterward obtain healing after his wickedness and be renewed. For God governs souls not with reverence, let me say, to the fifty years of the present life, but with references to the illegitimate or illimitable age, for he hath made the thinking principle immortal in its nature, and kindred to himself, and the rational soul is not, as in this life, excluded from cure. Come now, and let's let us use the following image from the gospel. There is a certain rock with a little surface soil, on which, if seeds fall, they quickly spring up. But when sprung up as not having root, they are burned and withered when the sun has arisen. Now this rock is a human soil, hardened on account of its negligence, and converted to stone because of its wickedness. For no one receives from God a heart created of stone, but it becomes such in consequence of wickedness. If one then were to find fault with the husbandman for not sowing his seed sooner upon the rocky soil, when he saw other rocky ground which had received seed flourishing, the husbandman would reply, I shall sow this ground more slowly, casting in seeds that will be able to retain their hold, this slower method being better for the ground and more secure than that which receives the seed in a more rapid manner and more upon the surface. The person finding fault would yield his assent to the husbandman as one who spoke with sound reason and who acted with skill. So also the great husbandman of all nature postpones that benefit which might be deemed premature, that it may not prove superficial. But it is probable that here someone may object to us with reference to this. Why do some of the seeds fall upon the earth that has superficial soil, the soul being, as it were, a rock? Now we must say in answer to this that it was better for this soul which desired better things precipitately and not by a way which led them to obtain its desire in order that, condemning itself on this account, it may, after a long time, endure to receive the husbandry, which is according to nature. 
For souls are, as one may say, innumerable, and their habits are innumerable, and their movements, and their purposes, and their assaults, and their efforts, of which there is only one admirable administrator who knows both the season and the fitting helps, and the avenues and the ways, God, the Father of all things, who knows how he conducts even Pharaoh by so great events, and by drowning in the sea with which latter occurrence his superintendence of Pharaoh does not cease. For he was not annihilated when drowned, for in the hand of God are both we and our words, all wisdom also, and knowledge of workmanship. And such is a moderate defense with regard to the statement that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and that God hath mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Let us look also at the declaration in Ezekiel, which says, I shall take away their stony hearts and put in them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my precepts. For if God, when he wills, takes away the stony hearts and implants hearts of flesh, so that his precepts are obeyed and his commandments are observed, it is not in our power to put away wickedness. For the taking away of the stony hearts is nothing else than the taking away of the wickedness, according to which one is hardened. And from him from whom God wills to take it, and the implanting of a heart of flesh, so that a man may walk in the precepts of God and keep his commandments, what else is it than to become somewhat yielding and unresistant to the truth and to be capable of practicing virtues? And if God promises to do this, and if, before he takes away the stony hearts, we do not lay them aside, it is manifest that it is not depend upon ourselves to put away wickedness. And if it is not we who do anything towards the production within us of the heart of flesh, but if it is God's doing, it will not be our own act to live agreeably to virtue, but altogether the result of divine grace. Such will be the statements of him who, from the mere words of Scripture, annihilates free will. But we shall answer, saying that we ought to understand these passages thus, that as a man who, for example, happened to be ignorant and uneducated, on perceiving his own defects, even in consequence of an exhortation from his teacher or in some other way, should spontaneously give himself up to him who considers, who he considers able to introduce him to education and virtue. And on his yielding himself up, his instructor promises that he will take away his ignorance and implant instruction, not as if it contributed nothing to his training and to the avoiding of ignorance that he brought himself to be healed, but because the instructor promised to improve him who desired improvement, so in the same way the word of God promises to take away wickedness, which it calls a stony heart from those who come to it, not if they are unwilling, but only if they submit themselves to the physician of the sick, as in the Gospels the sick are found coming to the Savior and asking to obtain healing and so are cured. And let me say, the recovery of sight by the blind is, so far as the request goes, the act of those who believe that they are capable of being healed, but as respects the restoration of sight, it is the work of our Savior. Thus then does the word of God promise to implant knowledge in those who come to, who come to it by taking away the stony and hard heart, which is wickedness, in order that one may walk in the divine commandments and keep the divine injunctions. There was after this the passage from the gospel, where the Savior said that for this reason did he speak to those without in parables, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand, lest they should be converted and their sins be forgiven them. Now our opponent will say, 
if some persons are assuredly converted on hearing words of greater clearness, so that they become worthy of the remission of sins. And if it does not depend on themselves to hear these words of greater clearness, but upon him who teaches, and he for this reason does not announce to them more dis- announce them to them more distinctly, lest they should see and understand, it is not within the power of such to be saved. And if so, we are not possessed of free will as regards salvation and destruction. Effectual indeed would be the reply to such arguments, were it not for the addition lest they should be converted and their sins be forgiven them. Namely, that the Savior did not wish those who were not to become good and virtuous to understand the more mystical parts of his teaching. And for this reason spake to them in parables, but now on account of the words, lest they should be converted and their sins be forgiven them, the defense is more difficult. In the first place, then, we must notice the passage and its bearing on the heretics who hung out those portions from the Old Testament where it is exhibited as they themselves daringly exert, uh, assert the cruelty of the creator of the world and his purpose of avenging and punishing the wicked, or by whatever other name they wish to designate such a quality. So speaking only that they may say that goodness does not exist in the creator and who do not deal with the New Testament in a similar manner, nor in a spirit of candor, but pass by places similar to those which they consider censurable in the Old Testament. For manifestly and according to the gospel is the Savior shown, as they assert, by his former words, not to speak distinctly for this reason, that men might not be converted, and, being converted, might become deserving of the remission of sins, which statement of itself is nothing inferior to those passages from the Old Testament which are objected to. And if they seek to defend the gospel, we must ask them whether they are not acting in a blameworthy manner and dealing differently with the same questions. And while not stumbling against the New Testament but seeking to defend it, they nevertheless bring a charge against the Old regarding similar points, whereas they ought to offer a defense in the same way of the passages from the New. And therefore we shall force them, on account of the resemblances, to regard all as the writings of one God. Come then, and let us, to the best of our abilities, furnish an answer to the questions submitted to us. We assert it also... When investigating the subject of Pharaoh, that sometimes a rapid cure is not for the advantage of those who are healed, if, after being seized by troublesome diseases, they should easily get rid of those which, by which they had been entangled. For, despising the evil as one that is of easy cure, and not being on their guard a second time against falling into it, they will be involved in it again. Wherefore, in the case of such persons, the everlasting God, the knower of secrets, who knows all things before they exist, in conformity with his goodness, delays sending them more rapid assistance, and, so to speak, in helping them does not help, the latter course being to their advantage. It is probable, then, that those without of whom we are speaking having been foreseen by the Savior according to our supposition as not likely to prove steady in their conversion, if they should hear clearly the words that were spoken, were so treated by the Savior as not to hear distinctly the deeper things of his teaching, lest, after a rapid conversion and after being healed by obtaining remission of sins, they should despise the wounds of their wickedness as being slight and easy of healing and should again speedily relapse into them and perhaps also suffering punishment for their former transgressions against virtue, which they had committed when they forsake her, when they had forsaken her. They had not yet filled up the full time in order that, being abandoned by the divine superintendence, 
and being filled to a greater degree by their own evils which they had sown, they may afterwards be called to a more stable repentance, so as to not be quickly entangled again in those evils in which they had formerly been involved when they treated with insolence the requirements of virtue and devoted themselves to worse things. Those then who are said to be without, manifestly by comparison with those within, not being very far from those within, while those within hear clearly, do themselves hear indistinctly, because they are addressed in parables, but nevertheless they do hear. Others again of those without, who are called Tyrians, although it was foreknown that they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, had the Savior come near their borders, do not even hear those words which are heard by those without, being, as is probable, very far inferior in merit to those without in order that at another season, after it had been more tolerable for them than for those who did not receive the word among whom he mentioned the Tyrians, they may, on hearing the word at a more appropriate time, obtain a more lasting repentance. But observe whether, besides our desire to investigate the truth, we do not rather strive to maintain an attitude of piety in everything regarding God and his Christ seeing we endeavor by every means to prove that in matters so great and so peculiar regarding the very providence of God, he takes an oversight of the immortal soul. If indeed one were to inquire regarding those things that are objected to, why those who saw wonders and who heard divine words are not benefited, while the Tyrians would have repented if such had been performed and spoken amongst them, and should ask and say, why did the Savior proclaim such these persons to their own hurt? that their sin might be reckoned to them as heavier. We must say, in answer to such a one, that he who understands the dispositions of all those who will find fault with his providence, alleging that it is owing to that they have not believed because it did not permit them to see what it enabled others to behold and did not arrange for them to hear those words by which others, on hearing them, were benefited, wishing to prove that their defense is not founded on reason. He grants those advantages which those who blame his administration asked in order that have, after obtaining them, they may notwithstanding be convicted of the greatest impiety and not having even then yielded themselves to be benefited, and may cease from such audacity as having been made free in respect to this very point, may learn that God occasionally, in conferring benefits upon certain persons, delays and procrastinates, not conferring the favor of seeing and hearing those things which, when seen and heard, would render the sin of those who did not believe, after acts so great and peculiar, heavier and more serious. That's all I'm going to read for now. Um, you've been listening to Origins First Principles on free will. Have a good one. God bless.